Thanks, Ryan. Hey, if you were here last week, <clears throat> maybe you uh, realize that uh, uh, at this time is when we dismiss all of the kids, uh, four years old through fourth grade, to head into uh, kids' church. Kids' church is happening right now, four years old through fourth grade. And maybe you also remember, if you were here last week, we uh, started this little chit-chat about how to argue with God and win. And uh, what we said about that is that kind of came from when my kids were little, I would give them a fairly pointed directive. You know, I'd say, okay, it's time to go to bed, right? <clears throat> and then uh, they would begin to argue with me, and sometimes they would win in the argument, right? And I was pretty clear. Uh, you know, I'd be like, Tyler, Katie, Chrisom, it is time to go to bed. Should just settle it. Should be done, right? But then they would say, but Dad, you said, you know, we have to brush our teeth before we go to bed. All right, go brush your teeth and then go to bed. So they would win the argument because they would remind me of the directive that I had given to them. So that was the premise of how to argue with God and win. And last week we talked about some things that we need to remind God. But Dad, you said, right? And so this morning we're simply continuing in that how to argue with God and win. And so here's what we want to do. Write this down in your bulletin. Remind God of His promises. Remind God of His promises. Now there's a great story in the Bible of God being reminded of a promise that He made. And in order to better understand that, uh, we're going to spend several minutes here doing a little bit of Bible review. Okay, here we go. Jacob, pull up the uh, slide here of the map, I think. Here we go. Some of you guys might recognize this. Um, first time I think this was up here was uh, in the last couple of weeks of May. We put this picture up here. And we were going through a sermon series called 1.5. And uh, so here's kind of some backstory. We need to remember that God creates everything in the book of Genesis, creates mankind. And then they sin in the Garden of Eden, right? They eat of the forbidden fruit. But God always has a desire to be close to mankind. So God sort of reaches out, if you will, to one guy named Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of all of the modern-day Jew, of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Uh, he would be uh, the modern-day patriarch of all of the biblical story, of the, uh, the narrative of the Old Testament, and the history of even the New Testament as it gets started. Uh, God reaches down to Abraham and says, I want to start a covenant with you and your descendants. And then we're going kind of, to push everybody outside, and uh, I'm going to reveal myself to you as my people, and other people are going to watch, and they're going to see how I relate to you and reveal myself to you and reveal my power to you, and they're going to watch, and they're going to learn, oh, this is who God really is. And then when Jesus comes, he's going to open the whole thing up so that everyone that wants to be a part of God's family can be a part of God's family. But he starts with Abraham. And Abraham, maybe you remember, was living over here in this place called Ur. And if you were here at the car show yesterday, maybe you remember that because there were cars that were going, Ur, 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 Ur. Yeah, 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 sure. All right, never mind. Uh, so, um, that's right. I'll be playing at the funny bone on, uh, no, just kidding. Uh, here we go. Uh, so Abraham, he lives over here in Ur, and God says, uh, Abraham, I want to start a relationship with you, a covenant with you, and then I want you to move from Ur over here to the land that I am giving you. That now modern-day Jerusalem is the city of Jerusalem, and Israel's over here. And uh, that's how we're going to know that we're in relationship with each other. I want you guys to move over there. And then we enter into a time of biblical history called the time of the patriarchs. 
They would be the original fathers of the faith, if you will, because Abraham, while he's living over here, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son, uh, uh, he has twin boys, twin boys, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau. Now, uh, here's, the, here's the biblical truth. Uh, the Bible tells us that Esau, twin boys, but Esau was born first. That makes him the oldest firstborn son. That means that he is the one that would receive the inheritance of the father. But the Bible says that as he was being born, it literally says that Jacob was behind him and was clutching his ankle when he was born. And Jacob from birth was like, uh-uh, I want to be in charge, right? And um, so what we find then is that uh, through the lineage of the patriarchs, Abraham, he has Isaac. Then Isaac has these twin boys. They're living over here. But then what takes place, and we're going to learn more about this here, is that the, the lineage of Abraham is going to move through Jacob, and they're going to come over here, and they're going to later be enslaved in Egypt. You've heard that uh, the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before they went through the Red Sea, and they made their way back to Jerusalem to the promised land of God. But Jacob's family goes over this way. Meanwhile, Esau's family stays here the whole time, and they populate this area. And so we said back, back then, we said that if you were a Jew, you would say my, my heritage and my lineage follows the line of Jacob. But if you were a modern-day Muslim living in this area, uh, you would say uh, that my lineage goes all the way back to the day of Esau because they're split. We're going to talk extensively about that in just a few minutes. Um, so they go from the time of what we call the patriarchs, the patriarchs. Uh, then we go through a time after they go through wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and they come into uh, Jerusalem here. And then we go into a time that was called the judges, the time of the judges. That's when the entire nation of Israel was led by different charismatic leaders that God would sort of draw up to the top. They didn't have a king and uh, just so they would have a leader, a different leader from time to time. But then all of the people, all of the people of Israel, they looked around at all of the other countries. And so uh, they were here, and they would look at all of the other countries that were out there, and they would say, well, they have a king. Why don't we have a king? And God would say to them, you don't want a king. King's going to tax you. He's going to build an army out of you. He's going to do all these things that a king would do. And they said, no, no, no. Everybody else got a king. We want a king. So God says, all right, I'll give you a king. So then we enter, we go from a time of the patriarchs, the patriarchs, followed by a time of the judges, and then there is a time of the kings, the kings. First three kings, they were what we call the United Kingdom, uh, that was King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon, and then we enter into, after King Solomon, King Solomon's son becomes king, but there's family fights, and then the kingdom is divided into a northern kingdom of Judah and a southern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the time of the kings, and after, or is king after king after king after king, and after the, the last king, so the nation of Israel was considered a nation from the time of the patriarchs to the time of the judges to the time of the kings. But then the nation of Israel gets overtaken by enemy armies and no longer do they have a king, but they live as a people group. 
Now we are simply known as the Jews, right? We are the Jews, and we then, they were first under the leadership of the Babylonians, and then the Assyrians, and later the Egyptians, and then during the time of Jesus, they were under Roman rule, and so it goes from the patriarchs, to the judges, to the kings, and then to a time when they had no leader, so to speak, as a, as a, uh, a nation, uh, but they were under other people's rules. And so that's a little bit of history there. And I'm telling you all of this because we're going to sort of see as the stories that we look at today are going to weave back into this thing. It's not like I just decided to do this. There's a point to it. And so, um, and so here we go. Um, this is where we're at. Remind God of his promises. Remind God of his promises. Now watch this. There's a fantastic story in the book of Genesis in which an individual reminds God of his promises. And the individual we're talking about was Jacob. And because there was a split between Jacob and Esau. And here's what happens. is uh, As I said, uh, Esau, being the older of the twins, was supposed to receive the inheritance from his father when his father passed away. Well, uh, Jacob was a sneaky guy. And uh, Isaac, his dad, was getting very old. He was probably blind or at least he couldn't see any farther than the palm of his hand in front of his face. And uh, he was laying in bed. He was about ready to die. And so um, Jacob, with a little bit of assistance from his mama, uh, they kind of come up with a scheme. And uh, Jacob figures out a way to trick his father in order to steal the inheritance from his brother Esau. And so he goes in and says, uh, Dad, it's me, your, your son, Esau. He says, well, it doesn't sound like you. Oh, yeah, it's me, Dad. You know? and, uh, and apparently he, he was, uh, kind of had hairy arms, and so he kind of put some hair on his arm and said, Yeah, feel, see, Dad, it's really me. And he says, Okay, if it's you, I'm going to give you my blessing. Well, then Esau comes home and finds out that his dad has given him the blessing. And so Esau does what maybe we would do if we were in a sibling fight like that. He decides the best thing to do is to get rid of and destroy and pound on and beat up my little brother and all these things. And he, he's going to go after and he's going to take out uh, Jacob. And so what does Jacob do? He does the wise thing and he runs for his life. And he leaves the area that's down there in the Jerusalem area and he runs off and he goes and he lives in another country that's led by other people and he, he finds a wife and he stays there and he begins to raise a family and he grows a, a great uh, herds of animals and, and all of these kinds of things and he prospers uh, there. And then he decides, well, I've been living away from my homeland and from my siblings that are down there and all of these people. I've been hiding out here for a long, long time. I think now is the time, some 25, 30 years later, it's time for me to go back home and see if I can't get reconnected with my family. So, Jacob sends a message to Esau and says, Esau, I would like to come and live back there in our hometown. And so what did Esau do? Esau goes and gets 400, he goes and gets 400 of his warrior buddies, and he goes out to the edge of town, and he waits for Jacob to show up. Dun, dun, dun. All right, we'll see you next week. Um, so this is what happens. Jacob, being very shrewd, he, because he's uh, sort of made himself very wealthy, he gets 400 sheep. 
And he says to his shepherds, I want you to take these sheep across the desert, and I want you to go and deliver them to my brother Esau. And when you arrive, he's going to see this giant cloud of dust coming from him. He's going to be wondering what's going on here, and he's going to come out, he's going to find you, he's going to ask you, what is all of this? And you are to tell him, these sheep are a gift to you, Esau, from your servant, Jacob. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. He doesn't do just that. Then he takes 400 goats, puts them all in a big herd, sends his shepherds, and they follow the sheep. And when they get there, they're given the word. Go to Esau and tell him, these are a gift to you from your servant, Jacob. And the Bible tells us that then he sent a herd of camels to him. Same line. And then the Bible says he sent a herd of cattle to him. Same line. And then his family goes and they're all telling Esau, we are here on behalf of your servant Jacob. Then Jacob, knowing what he is walking into, his brother isn't going to be mad, doesn't like him because of what he did to him. And he knows what he's going into. And so Jacob then, before he goes to see his brother, he goes off on a little camping excursion all by himself. And he spends the night all by himself before he goes to see his brother. You can read all about this in the book of Genesis. It's kind of fun to read. And so um, he, he goes off and he spends the night all by himself. And the Bible tells us that while he went off by himself, Jacob wrestled with the angel, and he was literally wrestling with God. There's a U2, there's a the song, the band U2, and there's a song that they sing, and it says, Jacob wrestled with the angel, and the angel was overcome. Maybe, maybe you've heard that line in there. That's literally what this comes from, is that Jacob stays up all night, and you're going to see as it's playing out, he's wrestling with God. He knows what he has done to his brother, and he knows where he's going, and he knows what he's going into, and he's wrestling with God through this whole thing. And here's where we pick up the story in the book of Genesis. Chapter 32, verse 26 to 30. I just want to remind you, how to argue with God and win. Remind him, remind God of his promise. And so here's what, here's what it's doing. Then the man, and the man that it's talking to, you'll see as it unfolds here, is literally it's God wrestling. It's an angel of God wrestling with, with Jacob. It says, then the man said, God said to Jacob, uh, he said this, he said, let me go, let me go. It's, Jacob's got a hold of him, he's got a hold of him. He says, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Huh, unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob answered, Jacob, or Jacob, he answered. So his name was Jacob. Do you know what Jacob? Jacob means crook. Jacob was a crook. He stole it from his brother. You know how he got all those sheep? All those sheep that he, uh, and goats that he took uh, to, to present to his brother. You can read about that just right before this story. It tells you how he got and he kind of tricked those out of another guy. And, and so the, the name is Crook. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. What's Israel? Israel became the nation of God. What do we call it today? Israel, the nation of Israel. He says, hey, you're going to be blessed because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Uh, Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, 
Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Huh. So he's wrestling with God. But why did he say, Bless me, bless me? You got to bless me. Why did he say that? Well, that's a great story. In order to understand exactly why, while he was wrestling with God, he looked boldly at God and said, you have to bless me. There's a reason for that. It's, here's the reason. It's because the first time around, the first thing, you, you recognize this picture? Here's some pictures. Um, you recognize that, it, not that you would, but this, have you ever heard, here's, here's some. I am climbing Jacob's ladder. You know, you know, maybe you've heard a song that goes something like that or references to Jacob's ladder. Maybe you, maybe you remember the story of Jacob. He takes a stone and he makes a pillow and he lays down and he has this dream. And while he's dreaming, there's this stairway that goes up to heaven. And you guys are all off into Led Zeppelin land right now. But there's this stairway that goes to heaven, right? And, and so um, that's the dream that he has. When did he have that dream? Here's when he had that dream. As soon as he betrayed his brother and then ran for his life, at the end of running for his life, he was so exhausted that he laid down there. So before he was married and had children, before, after all those years later, now he's going to go back and see God. But when he was on his way out of town initially, he, makes a, he puts a stone, he falls, and he has a sleep. And while he's having that dream, this takes place. Book of Genesis, chapter 23, or 28, verse 13. I am the Lord your God. Or I am, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, all the patriarchs. You're in that lineage, you're in that line. I will give you, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. When Jacob was wrestling with God, he was simply saying, but dad, you said, right? He was saying, this land that I'm going to go back to, that is there, that my brother has now got control of, you told me when I left my brother that when I got back there, it was going to be my land. And that's why God changed his name from Jacob the thief to Israel, which became the name of all of the land that was in that entire area. It was simply Jacob saying, God, we're wrestling, but there's something I need to remind you of. You said that this was going to be mine. And there's story after story after story in the Bible of when people were wrestling with God and are happy with God or were sad with God and they remind God of what he said and this was a promise that was extended to him. Maybe, maybe you remember, okay, here we go. So there was the time of the patriarchs and it was followed by the time of the judges and it was followed by then the time of the Kings, boom, yeah, boom, yeah, all right, you guys are doing a great job. And so now we're into the time of the kings. Now we're in the time of the kings. The first king was Saul, and then there was King David, and David was a fighting warrior. He was the guy, David and Goliath, and you know that story. And he becomes the king of the nation of Israel, and it was a united kingdom, and everything was good, and David was conquering. And, uh, and David desperately wanted to build a temple to God, okay? And uh, the, the temple location is still in Jerusalem, and you can go to that place today, and you can 
and see where the, a temple in Jerusalem. But, but God told him, no, you're not going to be able to build this because you've shed too much blood. He said, but your son is in fact going to build it. And David was kind of the architect and got to lay all those things out. Solomon built it. It had so much gold in it. It was absolutely spectacular. And then comes the day of sort of the ribbon-cutting ceremony of this new temple that was now built. And so all of a sudden, Solomon is there, and he is declaring, uh, today we get to open up the brand-new temple that's going to be the place where we worship God, and this is what takes place. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23-24. You who keep your covenants. Here's King Solomon saying, he's talking to God and to all the people that were there at the opening ceremony. He says, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Okay, let's just back up and review that. You who keep your covenant. A covenant is like a contract. It's like a promise. You who keep your promise of love, you're going to keep loving us with your servants. Who are your servants? The people that love God, know God, and are they living for God? And they do that how? Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly in your way. We stay in Christ's way wholeheartedly today as a Christian. He says, and here's Solomon, he's talking to the crowd. You who keep your covenant of love with your servant, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise in, to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it. He says, you made a promise, and you kept your promise. And if you read through chapter 8 over and over and over and over and over again, Solomon just keeps it. He simply keeps saying, you kept your promise. You kept your promise. You kept your You made a promise and you kept your promise. God, you made your promise. You ever wrestle with God? You ever wrestle with God? You ever wrestle with God? And then what about, do you ever remind God of his promises? Did you know that God has made you some promises that you can boldly look at him and say, but you said, you promised. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Book of Psalm, chapter 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jeremiah, chapter 33, verse 3. Call on me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It is as if God gave you a blank check and says, now go fill in the zeros. How many do you want? Now listen, not necessarily financially, but would you like to be more wise? Would you like to have more compassion? Would you like to have more grace? Would you like to have more forgiveness? Would you like to deal with situations in a more godly way? And God says, I have promised to look after you and to take care of you and help you to be like, be like my son. You're empowered with the Holy Spirit and he's promised it. And so we can boldly go before God and say, but God, you said, I need to be more in the likeness of your son. 
Help me to do that. And God will help us and come beside us. And he'll be with us and for us. And when you ever wrestle with things, oh man, sometimes we, we stay up at night and we wrestle and we wrestle and we wrestle. We do well to remind God of the promises that he has made to us to be more like his son. How to argue with God and win. Remind God of his promises. Uh, here's another one. Remind God of his record. Remind God of his record. So, here we go. We had the patriarchs. We had the judges. And then we had the time of the kings. And it starts as a united kingdom. And what, what does that mean? That means the entire nation of Israel was under one king. It was first Saul, then David, uh, then Solomon. But then Solomon's kids got in a fight. And then the kingdom became divided. It came in the northern kingdom of, uh, of uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And now there's two different kings and these guys don't even like each other anymore. And there's more family feuding that's going on. And, the, and so the, under the time of kings, now listen, there was a king, a king. His name was Hezekiah. Say Hezekiah. All right. And now there was another king, the king of Syria, and his name was Sennacherib. Say Sennacherib. Say, Hezekiah versus Sennacherib. Those are just kind of fun to say, right? Some of you guys butchered them up. Really, has a hula munga, something rub, so meat rub, right? And uh, put a little bit of meat rub on your burger when you're flipping it over there. So, so here's Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He's the king of Israel, and Sennacherib is the king of uh, of uh, Syria. And uh, so the king of Syria is the enemy of the people of Israel. They don't like him, and uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel has been sort of withered and diminished, and they're kind of weak and sickly, and Hezekiah is the king. And uh, so uh, Sennacherib's kind of feeling his oats, and so he writes a letter and sends it to King Hezekiah, and he says, here's what's going to go down. Uh, I am going to show up down there, and he says, we're going to put a whooping on you, and we're going to take over the whole place, and we're going to beat you down, and we're going to take over, and you guys should be good and scared. Well, Hezekiah gets this letter, and he understands they probably are in a position militarily where they might be able to do that. And so what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah takes that letter, and he goes into the temple, and he puts it on the altar, and then he prays. And this is what he prays. Second Kings chapter 19. Verse 15 through 16. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherub. What's that mean? Enthroned between the cherub. Right, you ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Ark of the Covenant? And there were those two angels that were on it and their wings kind of pointed together. Well, literally that piece of hardware was inside of the Holy of Holies and the Temple of God. And so they believed that was uh, sort of a representation or they believe literally God was with them there in the house with that there. And so he was saying, he's just simply saying, you're with us. You're among us. You're, you're right here. You're God. You're never far away. And Hezekiah... Praise this prayer. O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherub, you alone are God. There is no other God but you, God. Over all kingdoms of the earth, you're God, nobody else, just you, you're God. You have made heaven and earth. Nobody else created the whole thing, it's just you, you're God. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen. The words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living 
God. It's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm the king of your place. Hey, I'm not, uh, that's all, that's who I am. I'm Hezekiah. I'm the king of Israel. It's your people. These are my people. The, you are the God. And Sennacherib, he's not insulting me. He's insulting you, God. That's what's going down here. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 19 says, Now, O Lord God, deliver us from his hand, Sennacherib's hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. You're not a loser, God. You're a winner, God. You're the God. You're the only God. You're the real deal, God. And so this thing is on you. So what's going to look like if you, who has always been a winner, all of a sudden has a defeat? What's that going to look like, God? Well, we learn what takes place next. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 35 and 36. That night. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, did something that's probably pretty prudent. He broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Boom. God's power. Done. Wiped them out. Isn't that cool? Ah, this is so awesome. Hey, don't we, isn't it just kind of fun to read those Old Testament stories? And we, we just think to ourselves, man, God was so powerful in the Old Testament. And he could do all of those things. And you, you read those stories about the hand of God moving and, and how powerful he was back in the Old Testament. And then you read the book of Revelation and you think about things that are going to come someday way out there in the never-never. And God's going to be powerful someday way out there in the never-never. And God was powerful way back there in the never-never. Or oh, wait a minute, is God powerful now? Yes, he is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is is still extremely powerful. He is God. And we need to go to him and remind him that he is the God and he is all powerful and he has a winning track record. He is not a loser. You ever watch any movies? You ever watch a movie? You ever read a good book? You ever hear a good story? What is the plot line of every good movie, every good story, every good book that has ever been written? Right? There is a hero in the story somewhere, and they're sort of making their way, going through life, and then all of a sudden it looks like about 20 minutes before the end of the movie, all of a sudden the hero has got his back against the wall. It looks like all things are going to collapse. Everything is going wrong. There is no way he's going to be able to survive what the enemy is bringing against him. But then, dun, 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 the hero rises up and overtakes and always wins, and then the music plays and the credits roll and everybody leaves knowing, wow, the hero wins in the story. God is still a winner. He is not a loser. He was powerful in the Old Testament. He is powerful in times to come. And God is still powerful today. And we need to be a people that own it and believe it. God is God. He is God. Now listen, we can remind God of his promises and we can remind God of his record. And we can do this. We can remind God of his compassion. His compassion. Why do we need to go there? First, there was the time of the patriarchs. Then there was the time of the judges. Then there was the time of the kings. But the time of kings goes away. 
and the, the Babylonians come in and they completely destroy Jerusalem. They melt down all of the gold that is inside of the uh, temple that Solomon made and, and they haul all that all off and, and it all goes away. And a guy named Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he writes this story as saying these are the things that are going to happen to our nation if we don't repent and turn back to God. They didn't repent and turn back to God. And so their nation collapses. And then after uh, Jeremiah, most scholars believe that after Jeremiah uh, writes the book of Jeremiah, he writes a book called Lamentations, five chapters. And it's just lamenting the fact that all of the glory of Israel has been crushed by the Babylonians, been wiped out. And so he just reminds God over and over again, God, if we repent and we return back to you, we've not been doing it right, God. We, turned our, we started worshiping false gods. We, we even built temples to false gods. And we'd put a pole out in the middle of, of a field and we'd gather around. We'd pray the pole that we made because we turned our back on you, God. But because you're so compassionate, God, will you give us another chance? God, we know that you are a God of compassion. And sure enough, as you read through the story of the Old Testament, God allows some of the Jews to make their way back into uh, Jerusalem and to build a temple. And his compassion is showered upon them. What's that mean for us? Listen to this. The book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 through 11. In conclusion, then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. So you're at home at night. Your next-door neighbor comes on, bangs on the door, says, all the grocery stores are closed. My friends just showed up. I don't have anything to eat. Will you lend me something so I can feed him something? Verse 7. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are already in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And then you know what Jesus said next? So, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. So, remind God. God has made some promises that we need to remind him of. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That means greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Because I have the Holy Spirit within me, I've already can claim victory in the fact that I have beaten Satan up through the power of the cross. God has made some promises that we need to call out. God has, he has a winning track record, and he has never lost, and we are on his team. And as to his compassion, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son 
And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, that is an invitation to be on the team of God, to be in the family of God, to be able to claim the promises of God in your life, uh, to be able to remind God of his track record, and to fully embrace the compassion of God and the forgiveness that comes when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We say, dear Jesus, I need you to come in to my life because I am a sinner and I want to be made right before you and I want you to take away all my sins. And Jesus says, done. We say, I desire to be baptized into you, to be lowered into a watery grave and to be raised up again, to be a brand new person that's made new. And he says, done. And then we claim the promises of God. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey But here's what I want you to know. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus opens up his arms and says, I want you to be in my family. I want you to be in my family. I want you to come and give your life to me. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, God wants us.